Hello there, Pod Beasts. We've got an interview for you today with the film, TV, and choral composer Howard Goodall, documentary maker Howard Goodall. He's one of the people that we've been trying to get onto the pod from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. One of our great white whales, if you will. Mm -hmm. Just call me Ishmael. Mm -hmm. He piled upon the whale's white hump the sum of all the general rage and hate felt by his whole race from Adam down. And then, as if his chest had been a mortar, he burst his hot heart's shell upon it, didn't he, Sam? Look at you with your literary references. Do you only know that because it's in Star Trek? Yes. Good morning, Howard. Uh, last time I saw, in fact, the only time I've met you before, I was chasing after you through the foyer of the British Museum put a Howard Goodall score underneath it and we're basically the climax of a Richard Curtis movie. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> or actually I wasn't in fact stealing some priceless artifact and you were doing your citizen's duty stopping <laughs> me leave with it in my bulging stop, pocket. Stop that man. Uh, no indeed. Hey uh, and it was the Ivor Neville Awards. Are you good at award ceremonies? Do you tend to have fun at them? Uh, not Really? I mean, the thing is that uh, I realise that I have to be very careful about what I say here because it's only people who go to award ceremonies or have won a few awards <laughs> that complain about them. And yes. I realise it's you're speaking from a position of great privilege and silliness. Mm. Um, no one takes you seriously if you say, I don't like award ceremonies, and then someone gives you a gong. Obviously, in terms of one's career and all the rest of it, having a pat on the back, especially from your peers which yeah. sometimes is the case, not always, is a lovely thing. And I think especially for people in early stages of their career, getting recognition is really, really mm. helpful because, you know, getting your career off the ground as a composer, say, um, where you're not, you know, a public face particularly, but you want the public to know your work, that's very hard. You know, if you're going to be a pop star or a famous actor, Mm. Um, your aim is to get your face known so that people ask you questions and, um, <laughs> you know, you get into the papers or whatever it is you, you want to get so that your work can be recognised. It's a kind of necessary part of being a famous face. Yeah. However, if you're a composer, the face bit doesn't go with it, uh, unless you're Andrew Lloyd Webber, who's done TV programmes. Most composers, <laughs> people can't really summon up what they look like yeah. Millions of people around the world love the music of John Williams, the film music of John Williams and Hans Zimmer, for example, or Howard mm. Shaw, but would we'll, we'll be hard-pressed to notice them in a pub. And mm. I think that that's, that's fine when you're Hans Zimmer or John Williams, but when you're starting out, it's really hard to get to make yourself, as it were, be heard. And you, what you really want is the music to be heard. You're not bothered whether you stand on a stage or not. <laughs> And so I do accept that award ceremonies of all kinds um, are, can be helpful to people's careers. Um, but there is a slight um, contradiction here, which is that, um, you know, if you're a composer, uh, and there are many other forms of creativity that are similar in this respect, you spend a lot of time on your own, in, with your, yeah. in your own head, working in a studio or in your back room or whatever it is. And it's quite solitary. And I think a lot of creative people are quite happy with that solitariness and find big crowds of people, um, you know, a little bit intimidating or perhaps mm. not their most comfortable uh, milieu. Yeah. 
And so going to an awards ceremony is exactly that. It's kind of bustle and noise and lots of people and people whose names you can't remember. <laughs> you vaguely know them and all that pressure. And so I'm not like, I'm, it's, I, I would say the same about um, first nights, you know, premieres of things mm. that you're not involved with yourself, that you get invited to. If you're like me, a Z-list celebrity occasionally asked <laughs> to, to things. Um, the thing about them is that it's only people who get invited who complain about it again. Yeah, if you um, love it to come. It can be a very exciting thing and a wonderful thing to see a film first and to see one or two of the people in it, you know, go up on stage and all that kind of stuff. Mm. And at a premiere, a film, for example, gets a round of applause like it's in a theatre, which is quite of a nice thing of an event. Yeah. You know, and I remember going to see Ron Howard's film of eight days a week about the Beatles touring, oh, yeah. which was a rather wonderful film, actually, which I was in for about one minute. And it's pretty exciting to see at the end of that film, Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr go on stage mm. at the Two Living Beatles, um, having sit through, sat through that film. So, and I'm, you know, I am kind of in the media, but I do find, you know, seeing people like that is pretty exciting. They are legendary, yeah. extraordinary figures in our culture. We've shared the planet at the same time as then. To, so to be in the room, in the same mm. place, that is pretty exciting. I'm not, I'm not lost that side of being a fan. Mm. But on the whole, in the theatre, for example, a first night is not the best time or place to see a play or a musical. No. Because the actors are behaving in a weird way because it's a first night. Um, the audience mm. are behaving in a weird way because they're not a normal audience. They're made up of invitees and press and everybody's nervous. And the whole thing is like the worst way to see anything in terms of it as a... A, a cultural event you want to see a, a great play or a great musical come to life see it in a preview um, when you can sit with ordinary people that said i'm going to keep qualifying all the things i say <laughs> if you are at the premiere of a new piece of music the mm. particularly classical music the event is really important because it's one thing to get someone to commission you to write a piece for orchestra say it's another thing to get that first performance which the orchestra have commissioned you want to do getting the second performance is unbelievably difficult you can talk to yeah. any classical composer in the world who say the same thing it's the one <laughs> thing we all agree on first performance fine second performance how do you persuade someone else to do a piece they didn't commission and they hardly know who you are mm. and if you can make an event out of the premiere the first one and get a bit of press or whatever it is you get out of it um, then you have got much more chance of there being a second performance because somebody's heard about it happening. So it's sort of necessary, a premiere, in, in many forms of music, um, in a way that, live music particularly, uh, in a way that you'd imagine wouldn't make so much difference. It makes a huge difference. And I think, um, therefore, it's a necessary part of what we do. And yes, I find big crowded rooms, especially since COVID, big crowded rooms full of people a little bit, you know, I'm not my favourite place to be. I'd rather be with a small group of people and have proper conversations with them than um, be in a large place. But it is part of the job. And so I'm not going to complain, Sam. <laughs> uh, I think, it's, you know, we're lucky to be invited yeah. to things and we're lucky to see things and to engage in the culture generally. I have one gripe, though, I will pass on, which is what I would describe as TV awards. Right. Quite a few award ceremonies now that reflect TV, you know, whether it's... BAFTA TV or National Television Awards, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And what's happened is that the because they're televised, it's really, really important for the people who are putting the awards on that the maximum number of people on the screen are famous. And that mostly right. means comedians. TV awards of all kinds have become skewed towards celebrity. And the problem with that is, it's lovely to watch lots of fame, clever and wonderful, famous people do things on TV, which is why it's televised. Mm. The problem is that the nature of the awards has gone upside down. And the whole point of awards, as far as I understand it, and I could be corrected <laughs> by somebody on this, but isn't the point of any awards in any field of endeavor that you, it's people who know about something or who are in some field patting people on the back whose work they admire and acknowledge, even mm -hmm. though the public may not understand that they are brilliant at this. 
Mm. Um, and that it's kind of a consolation prize for not necessarily being the best selling something. It might just be the best made or the yeah. most interesting. So, for example, I once went to uh, an industry awards where they give awards to people who run music shops, who sell mm. musical instruments and sheet yeah. music, things like this. And I remember thinking halfway through the evening, even though, you know, it is quite funny in a way, here's the award for best new keyboard instrument. Uh, it, actually, I thought this, this is what the point of this is, yeah. because you're saying that everybody who does this stuff thinks, gosh, this new piece of gear by Yamaha, whatever it may be, mm. or it may be a firm you've never heard of, Bob Smithers Electronic Keyboard <laughs> Limited yeah. in, from Solihull, have brought out a keyboard that everybody who sells keyboards thinks is a really fantastic product. And you may not have heard of it, and it may not be the best selling, but it's a brilliant thing. Mm. And the point of these awards is to say, this is brilliant, you should know about it, and you should have one. Mm. And um, that's what awards like BAFTA and things like that, that's how they started out, because they, they acknowledged that things that are necessarily hugely popular um, aren't necessarily the best, they just happen to be the most popular, and there are very good things about them. Mm. But the, this, it seems to be the point of awards is to compensate people who are very good at something, who may not be famous, and who may not be the most popular. But what's happened with the televisual aspect of awards is that it's all switched over to basically giving awards to things that are most popular. And so the point of the awards has sort of gone away. If all you're going to do is give the best-selling film the award for best film, what's the point of the awards? Yeah. Absolutely pointless. But if you are going to... I mean, I would say to some extent, the Academy Awards, which, you know, walk a thin tightrope, but one of the things that's happened over the years is that they've increased and increased and increased their categories because they're understanding that there are huge numbers of skills involved in any film, hmm. you know, whatever it's editing or sound or whatever it is. And, um, you know, that they have to acknowledge all those people as well. And of course, they don't all end up on the TV highlights. <laughs> but the reason why the Oscars last forever, and I've been to the Oscars once in LA, and it's, it more or less takes an entire day. It's wow. so long. And in fact, there are people who are hired to wear DJs and posh frocks in the case of um, women, who are hired to go and sit in your seat when you go to the loo, which you must do several times, mm. obviously, in it, but because it lasts you know eight hours or nine hours or something. Uh, but the fact is, the reason it takes so long is because they're giving so many awards out and they acknowledge that part of the point of them existing is to say to people who work in their industry, you did good on this. So, for example, Coda winning best film seems to me exactly the kind of film that should get an award because it's a brilliantly made film. It's wonderful to watch, but it's not the most famous thing with the most famous people in it. It's, mm. you know, it's came from slightly left field and um, giving, shining the spotlight on something like that, that everybody else in the industry thinks, well, actually, this is a really good film is to me, that's the point of it. But I think the televised awards we have here have slightly given up on trying to do that. And they've slightly said, well, actually what the public want to watch is famous people. So we're gonna start A, having lots of famous people presenting the awards, but also we'll only show those awards where a famous person's involved. And that's no disrespect to the famous people involved who do that, good for them. You know, they're given up in the evening to make it all work a bit better. But it does mean that the awards slightly lose their validity in my view. Mm. Uh, but a lot of the award ceremonies that take place, whether it's the Music Industries Award I was talking about a minute ago, or Ivan Avello Awards, which you came to see, or the Composer Awards, whatever they are, they are actually still designed to do that, and they do do that. That's what I actually really enjoyed about them, is that they pointed me towards something that I hadn't come across. And I think maybe that, I mean, here's some COD film analysis, maybe that's why fewer people watch the Oscars. If they already know what's going to win, then it's less exciting. You're not being pointed yeah. towards something new. That's what I, I loved about the, that award ceremony was I got this whole listening list yes. arrived via email. I said, listen to these 30 pieces. And that was a, a good afternoon's work for me.
you were at the others for your piece never to forget which as i said i listened to sat on my sofa you know tuba concerto here and this and then this one really jumped out at me it's basically why i hunted you down to have a chat to uh i just found it deeply moving and i just wondered if you could share a bit about the concept and the commissioning process for the piece Yes, the the source of all this was being a composer at the beginning of lockdown, mm. thinking, what's the point of being a composer? Because, yeah. you know, if there's no live music and there's no live theatre and there's everything's shut down, what, what what's the point of me doing my job? Uh, even though lots of people at home in lockdown were listening to lots of music by different composers, including some by me, which is very nice. <laughs> I did think because I had a daughter who was doing medical research on COVID-19 and was popping up on the TV talking about it. My other daughter was teaching in a large comprehensive school in uh, London. And uh, contrary to what government ministers keep telling you, that teachers had all that time off. No, they didn't. They carried on teaching all the way through. What the hell are you talking about, you asshole? Uh, <laughs> the, the teachers carried on working. It was worse in a way because they had to do... They, first of all, they were doing online classes all day long. And then... They had to do hybrid, which was mm. some online and some in person. And she had to go in, in the teeth of the main part of the pandemic before the vaccinations existed and do a rota of, of teachers doing teaching the children of the key workers in yeah. the hub. So it was all three of those things. In a way, I think she she worked harder, you know, as a teacher during lockdown than almost any time in her career. So um, I was thinking, well, here I am just thinking of tunes. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> And I wrote an article about this, about what it felt like, and also what I thought the role of a composer should be, because there have been things in the past, nothing quite like the global pandemic we just had, but there have been pandemics before and there have been wars before where culture has been suspended mm. to some extent. So I just looked back through history about what had happened. And I think one of the things that a composer can do is be part of the memorialization of those we lose during mm. something like a war or a pandemic. And uh, to remember them and to make sure that they are always there in an indestructible form, which is a piece mm. of music. And um, I was then, having written this article, I was then approached by the London Symphony Chorus, who said, would I write them a piece, a pandemic-related piece? And I said, well, the thing that I'd like to try and do is a musical version of The Men in Gate. And what it would be mm. is that all the names of the uh, health workers who died during the pandemic in the cause of their work would be sung as a music memorial, one after another. Mm. So the men in gate, I don't know if you remember, is, is, is a monument near the, near the Somme where yeah. the names of all the individuals who died in the battles in that area are carved into a stone. It stands there and will stand there for hopefully hundreds of years. But I wanted to do a musical version of this where they would be remembered. I think there was a double reason in my mind that this should be what a piece of music might be because in the pandemic, because none of these people had funerals or at least funerals yeah. where they could be celebrated, their lives could be celebrated and honored. Uh, no one was able to sing something at their funeral. There were no farewells. They were often didn't even see their loved ones when they died. And then they were buried you know, in sort of discrete circumstances where people couldn't be gathered and all the rest of it. Mm. So my idea was that I would, the whole text of this piece would just be their names one after another and that it would be expandable in theory. So we did a version that was online, which they all did, all the chorus members and the orchestra did it in their own homes. It was put together an online version in that first year of the pandemic in the first summer and there were 122 names in the piece at that time and it lasted about eight minutes because my rule was that each name should be heard separately not layered on top of each other and that it should be roughly well it should be as exactly as possible how you'd actually say the name so if it was a long name yeah. it would be a long name you wouldn't shorten it and it turned out there was an enormous amount of research needed to go into how one pronounced all these names, because it won't surprise anybody listening to this that the majority, I mean, it is quite a significant majority of the people in that list are from cultures and backgrounds whose origins are all over the world. There are lots and lots of names. We're not quite sure how, where the emphasis falls in the names. How do you pronounce mm. How do they pronounce their name? Might not be the same as a generic version of it. So the symphony chorus got people involved in working with the NHS Confederation and the, and the nurses' unions, etc. And 
we didn't want to disturb the families of the people who'd lost their loved ones um, because they were dealing with their grief. We wanted to try and find as much of this information out as possible without bothering them. Hmm. So there was a lot of research went into it. So we did this first version with 122 names. And the idea was always to expand it. So as the name, the list grew, I don't think anybody could have anticipated just how many health workers were going to die. Mm. Um, because we did another version live the following year, it's 2021, opening the Spitalfields Festival in July. I think it was the first choral concert for 16 months that it happened anywhere. And we, when we froze that ready for performance, the name, it was something like 350 names there. But of course, now the total number is much, much higher than that. And I did it the second time we did it because it got to about 21 minutes, by the, maybe not as much as that, 15, maybe 16. And I did say to them, I think we have to have a mechanism whereby this doesn't just become the longest piece ever because we wanted to keep it a manageable amount so that other choirs could do it, uh, which they now are doing. So what happened was I wrote a bit at the end, which a text which sort of said all these names and all the other ones yet to be revealed and uh, never mm -hmm. to forget, so that we were able to, as it were, close it down under 400 names. So um, we then did it this year again in St Paul's Cathedral as part of a national memorial. And um, St Paul's Cathedral, as you know, has a very large capacity. I don't know what it is exactly, but maybe 5,000 people. Yeah. All of them pretty much were invitees and they were families of the people whose names were in that piece. Wow. So, and it was danced by the Rombert Dance Company, did a choreographed version of it as I conducted the orchestra and the choir. And it was a very, very extraordinary thing to have lived through and to have witnessed and experienced and been privileged to have been able to do. So I think to some extent, even though I did another big <laughs> pandemic piece, um, I think I hopefully slightly answered, at least for my own purposes, my question about what do you do as a composer in a pandemic? I think I, what I found moving listening to it was, as you said, uh, all that research and checking and how do they say it, not just how is it. It really felt like there was a degree of care being taken for these people. And that, it, yeah, it was something that we were all reaching for in, in that time, wasn't it? How do we take care of one another when we can't be near each other, when yeah. actually we haven't got the tools to do it yet? We don't know how to protect these people, all that kind of stuff. It was yeah as I say affecting to listen to was when you were in the compositional process of this does it take an emotional toll do you, are you able to keep some sense of uh, artisan's distance from what it is that you're working on or does it weigh on you that as that list keeps growing that's a very perceptive question I think you can't not be can't not weigh on you just to, to some extent uh, I mean I've picked in recent years subjects like that, which are emotionally mm. highly charged. I feel perhaps being a bit older and more experienced as a composer, it's probably slightly easier in as much as I do get, of course, incredibly emotionally involved in these sort of things. But you, in order to do the job, there's a huge amount of technical mm. uh, know-how that has to come into place. And actually I did sort of distract myself by actually getting all the rhythms of all the names right mm. and trying to write it in such a way that it wouldn't sound like a different piece of music every two bars. Uh, so there was some unity to the piece and there would be some build and some rise and fall and that there would be things that you could recognise coming back even though the names of the rhythms were different. Mm. So I think I, I slightly thought through that I would have to spend a lot of time technically making this work. And then when we opened up the piece to do the longer version of it, I had to do that again twice over and sort of recreate if you imagine the seven bridge being created once and then now we're going to, you know, the seven's yeah. got much wider, we're going to have to rebuild. You wouldn't actually just add a bit. You'd have to restructure the whole architecture mm. of it to make it work on a much wider river. So that's kind of what had to happen. It had to be sort of opened up and recon reconfigured. So I, I thought of, I did get involved, but you know, 
um, I do stage musicals. I've done, you know, I guess about a dozen now in my life, and they go on stage, and luckily some of them are still being done. But the what happens with that is I tend to pick subjects that do have relatively high emotional octane in their fuel. Yeah. And so um, it's hard not to get, uh, you know, affected by that, uh, especially when you're in a room rehearsing something with people. And once it becomes real people performing it, a whole new layer gets added onto the way the thing expresses itself. Hmm. You know, I'm hearing it all in my head and I'm sort of in control of that. But when it comes out into a rehearsal room, you're not in control of that. Other people will do things and the shape of it will change and the, the air in the room will be moved in a different way you're not expecting. And then after that, you then put it in front of an audience and an audience will have <laughs> their own uh, electric charge to add to the room. Mm. And it's both good and bad, by the way. I mean, you know, you can do something in a rehearsal room with a cast of a show and you think, gosh, this sounds fantastic. You know, it's really working really well, yeah. sounding great, and they'll love this bit, you know, that kind of stuff. And then you put it in front of an audience and they have their own mind about that. Oh, that was the bit they didn't like so much. And then some other bit they really loved. You had no idea why they would be, why would they like that <laughs> bit? And I think it's my, if I had to give advice to my you know, 18 year old self starting out as a composer, I'd say one of the things I've learned is that you cannot um, second guess an audience. You just can't. Yeah. No idea when you're doing what you're doing, however much you love one bit, which bits of your pieces, or indeed which pieces of yours, people will really be sparked up by, and others that you're really proud of, they just register as nothing. But I think <laughs> that's the thing I tell my 18-year-old self, is don't put all mm. your eggs into every new piece, because if you're expecting every piece to be a success, or every piece of it, you're going to be very disappointed. But if you accept that the journey will include unexpected joys that someone's picked something up and they love it yeah um, then that's that's a great consolation for the thing that you really thought would be a massive success and then wasn't uh <laughs> you know i it's quite a lot of interest to me and to nobody else in the world that my most listened to thing on spotify uh by quite a margin is a piece a piano piece called shackleton's cross that i wrote a few years ago and i actually did it as a piece that would be a filler on an album of something else. Just a bundle <laughs> on a couple of solo piano pieces. Uh, and it's a piece I'd written because I'd seen this beautiful picture um, painting mm. of Shackleton's Cross in South Georgia. And I wrote this piano piece and I thought, oh, look, I need to fill up this album. I'll stick it on there. And it's become my most listened to piece. Well, that mm. is entirely unexpected. It's very nice, by the way, that that's yeah. the case. And it's played on classical MMM as well quite a lot. But I could not have prejudged that. I don't think anybody could have guessed that would be it. They might have guessed Psalm 23, the Lord yeah. of Christ Shepherd from Vicar of Dibley, which is up there in the top 10. Okay. Or they might have guessed Blackadder or Red Dwarf, I guess, or mm -hmm. Mr. Bean, you know, yeah, loved by many millions across the world. But no, it's Shackleton's Cross. So I think <laughs> just important to get the perspective that you never know quite what an audience will do to the piece. And that in itself might be moving. You know, I did a... Mm. Um, a musical, the musical, stage musical of Bend It Like Beckham. Yeah. Um, about yeah. six years, seven years ago. And one of the most moving things is once I'd heard, you know, if you write a rest of musical, you're going to have to get used to hearing it about a million times. And any <laughs> kind of emotional attachment you may have that made you a bit teary on day one has mm. definitely worn off by day 89. But what I did find moving, if I ever popped in to see the show later in the run, was the audience because yeah. to see a West End audience um, at least half full people of colour mm. um, absolutely loving this show about how people could live side by side and happily and you know mm. come to terms with their backgrounds and their people their neighbours and their aspirations and to see that in a sense the story of Bendit Light Beckham of Jules Bamra's life and how she re reconciles her football and her Asian parents wishes to see that as it were played out in the audience loving the coming together of those two worlds and the, the reconciling of it and actually see the audience in a sense reflecting that and modern britain was a very moving thing i used to love watching the audience mm. uh, when they used to come and see the show it's a very very positive show about integration and mm. you know, the modern and the heritage trying to fight 
for a place in someone's life and then finding it. I wonder if there's any show, because you are so often tethered to a TV program, a stage show, the other people's work as a collaborator, are there any great TV theme tunes that would for the pilot that never got picked up? Is there something in a back catalogue somewhere that could uh, rear its head? I mean, if the Vicar of Dibley had never been commissioned, we would. what would school choirs be singing? I mean... <laughs> <laughs> um, well, that's. I don't know. I mean, the thing is that uh, there's no such thing as wasted music in a sense if you're a mm. composer. Handel taught us this, you know, yeah. your own music as much as you like. And sometimes, you know, I've written things for something that didn't happen for whatever reason. Uh, and they've miraculously found a new way of being used later on. Mm. Think, oh gosh, that tune. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I, I do tend to recycle things. So there's probably not something, you know, wonder wondrous yeah. that I haven't reused if it didn't happen. I mean, anybody who works in media industries will know that quite a percentage of what you do doesn't happen. It's not nothing to mm. do with you. It's to do with the circumstances of something being tried out and then not working or a pilot goes nowhere or doesn't get commissioned or a lead performer doesn't want to do it. Or There's all sorts of hundreds of reasons why things don't happen, but you get involved at an early development stage of loads of things. And is there a, is there a hierarchy of satisfaction for you between say a tv theme tune a stage show a emotionally charged concert piece what is there a, a do you need I the mix i mean in terms of the seriousness with which i approach the job hmm. no, not at all no hierarchy i mean i would treat writing the theme for a sitcom on exactly the same level as writing a piece for orchestra you know for concert piece i do think that hmm. you have to do this thing properly and seriously one of the things i learned from my uh, tutor at university which was that if you're going to do music don't just do it because it's fun do it because you can do it really well whatever it is do it incredibly well details matter mm. and you know getting things right matters and just do it to your best of your ability so i think that's something i feel about all the work i do but i think you're actually uh, hinting at something else which is not so much a hierarchy of seriousness of how you approach the job or professionalism mm. it's is there something that's kind of more fulfilling than something else and i suppose there are different, the, the, the politician's answer to this is that <laughs> there are different rewards for the, for the different things you do. So it is undoubtedly, you know, hugely wonderful mm. that Mr. Bean music that I've done for many, many years um, is enjoyed by so many, let's say, 25% of the entire population of planet Earth. Yeah, enjoyed it's it. mad. That is quite a extraordinary thought you know there's one cover version a sort of hip-hop cover version of <laughs> my music for the animated mr bean cartoons one bloke in south korea did a cover version put it on youtube and it's already had something like 15 million views this is a phenomenon you know mr bean is yeah. one of the along with the lion king and harry potter and you know manchester united is mm. kind of one of the biggest entertainment entities that's ever existed on the planet mm. and that is a particular reward i just think it's an extraordinary thing another reward might be the vicar of dibley thing which was i, I you know wanted to do a great theme for richard curtis's comedy series that seemed right and proper to the job in hand uh, and that it should be a nice tune and the rest of it. But what I could not have anticipated is what you were referring to, which is that the reward of the fact that church choirs all over the world and school choirs and college choirs sing that piece, maybe, I don't know the actual figures, and maybe the most performed piece of choral music in the last quarter century, I don't know, around the world, but it's, very, it's a very, very large number. And I only know that because, by the way, you couldn't possibly make a living out of writing church music and the sheet music on yeah. it. But... It's a very, very nice reward that so many choirs like to sing it and that, that it's known around the world and all the rest of it. Of course, it's because it's attached to a much-loved, very, very popular TV series. I'm not kidding myself mm. that the music without that would have anything like had that response. But that's a different reward. But then there's another reward, which is I think that, you know, um, I'm 
got to doing these larger scale choral and orchestra works in the last few years and Eternal Light of Requiem mm. uh, and then um, Invictus of Passion and most recently Unconditional Love, which is a kind of pandemic cantata. These larger scale pieces, I find them very, very rewarding from a composer's point of view because I'm making big structures, mm. big architecture. So the difference between, you know, designing a cathedral compared to designing a nice, comfortable house. Uh, yeah. It's just like a, the scale of it is different. And I, I love the freedom in the sense you have as a composer to sort of shape it how you want. Because in all the other things I do, whether it's film or TV or theatre or dance, you know, writing for dance, is the collaborative thing means you are surrendering part of your sovereignty in order yeah. to get the best product. So you work with, you know, a director or a choreographer or a writer or whatever it is, and they will say, no, that bit doesn't work for us. Can you change that? And so you, you aren't solely in charge. In fact, if you're working on music for a film, you're quite low down the priorities. <laughs> you know, it's a visual medium that you are yeah. a servant of. Um, whereas if you're doing, if you're writing a piece of classical choral music with orchestra, you're more or less the only person who makes any decisions. And that's a, you know, lovely in one respect, but it's a very different collaborative adventure. Of course, you're collaborating with your performers mm. and with the people who commission it. But um, with these pieces, I've been able to sort of expand in a way. And because each of these pieces were com was commissioned by a particular performing group, you form a relationship with them that is very, very special about the creation of a new large scale work because they're gonna have to spend weeks, if not months, learning it and making it theirs and presenting it to the world. So they have a huge emotional relationship with the piece and you do too. And in, in the case of the two most recent Invictus of Passion and uh, unconditional love. Uh, they were both commissioned by the same choir in Houston, Texas. And I went over and rehearsed it with them and then conducted the premieres. And conducting those premieres in front of a 1,200, 2,000 people, whatever it is, uh, is an extraordinary experience because the, in the room, what you're getting is a very, very um, almost tangible sense of collaborative endeavor and a piece mm. of music being unveiled to them by them. And it's just a wonderful thing. And it's a very different reward to the Mr. Bean one or the Vicar of Dibley <laughs> one or the, you know, whatever it may be. So I, I think I'm understanding more and more that there are different, you know, types of fulfillment in the work that one does. And the, also I would say that the measure of what it works and what doesn't work changes all the time as well. Mm. You know, if you're writing a West End musical, the measure of, in everybody's minds except yours, by the way, the measure of whether a Western musical works is does it run for any period of time? Do enough right. people come? Do, yeah. do 1,500 people come a night for a year uh, uh, having spent quite a lot of money to do so? That's a big <laughs> ask. Mm. And making a successful commercial musical in the West End last longer than a few months is really, really difficult. Much more difficult than trying to get an audience for a new opera where it might only have 10 performances. Yeah. You're basically asking 10,000 people to come and mm. see your show, whereas a musical, you're asking 10,000 people every five nights. And so the measure in most people's minds is, have, has it run two years? Did it make its initial capitalization? <laughs> so that's a very different measure of success to say a choral piece that mm. you know might have been designed, like Never to Forget, for a very particular purpose to memorialize people. Now, it matters less in that situation how many people buy the copy, uh, it matters less, in a sense, how many choirs do it. What really matters there is when the choirs do perform it, is it uh, uh, the experience one would hope it would be? And is it honouring those people? And is it you know, emotionally satisfying? And does it do the job it's meant to do? So I think there are very, very different measures across yeah. all the things that you do. And if you write music for an ad, obviously, um, <laughs> I haven't done one of those for a while, but when you do, kind of the idea is that people are going to buy the product. Uh, so these are all just very different uh, measures and mm. I think what you have to develop as a composer if you're going to have a career at it you know year after year is you've got to understand the ups and downs and the different measures it's just like a mixed field and not to expect the same thing the same the same pushback from each of the things you do yeah. you've just got to accept it's it's so different and different things different rules apply and so, for me the variety is you know part of the joy of it it has not been easy oh, no 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 easy Easy. 
so I have to confess, I first didn't come across you as a composer. I came across you whenever my music teacher was away at school because you would be put on with Big Bangs or something like How Music Works. And you were explaining and analysing music and communicating about it. And I wonder, in that process, what are your measures for success for an analysis of a baseline, a piece? Have you well, got specific um, criteria? First of all, I, I made a whole series of series, first of all, Channel 4 <laughs> and then for the BBC, um, over a period of time. I haven't done one for a few years. Now, my last one was a, a, a one-off film about Sergeant Pepper in 2017, yeah. to honour the 50th anniversary of that record coming out. And I would say that over the broad sweep of the different periods, some of them had a different you know, idea behind them to others. So there was one about the pipe organ <laughs> and then there was one about the history of music and there was one about how music works so it's kind of about the rudiments of music mm. and there was one about great dates in the years and there was this as you mentioned big bangs which is about big leaps forward in musical progress guido i remember the one on guido direct so watched that a few times actually <laughs> <laughs> yes so um it was quite funny because a friend of mine a few days a few weeks a couple of weeks ago went to visit arezzo when guido yeah. came from the man who invented notation. And he said, oh, it was fascinating going around there. Someone should make a program about this guy who did the music. I said, I did it 20 <laughs> years ago. Anyway, I think my attitude has always been this, which is that my programs are about are for music lovers, people who love music, but don't know very much about the technical intricacies of it. Mm. But I, I don't want to do noddy versions of this thing. I actually do want to try and explain these things in the way you would explain something on the old series of Horizon about science mm. or Panorama about something political or David Attenborough something about nature. He doesn't say there's a fluffy thing in the lovely bubbly water. He seems to be looking like he's having his lunch. <laughs> you know, that would be a very nice thing, but he actually is yeah. telling you stuff that's really about what's going on. And he's assuming you're sort of intent, you're a sort of sentient, intelligent human being, and yeah. you can take stuff in. But my rule is never use a jargon term unless you explain it. So yeah. you, can, you can say key or, or modulation or any of these other technical musical terms, but to explain it so that the mm. viewer doesn't know that can get the idea of it. And after a while, it starts to become second nature. You get a sense of what you could say that a kind of reasonably intelligent human being would understand and, uh, and what would be something that only trained musicians would know. And I think knowing the difference between those two things, and you're working with a team of people and you can often, often say, when I'm doing a piece to camera, I can just check with the cameraman or the, you know, yeah. the, the, the director or whatever. Is that, does that make sense to someone who's not up to speed with all the terms? And so mm. and my view is that I don't want to patronise people. I want to just say to them, like, this is actually complicated, and I'm going to try and explain it in a way that makes mm. it seem less complicated. And my job is not to tell people what's good or bad or what they should like and what they shouldn't like or which genre of music is better than which other genre <laughs> of music. My job is to explain how the thing is working, why people think that this piece by Mozart is of significance. Why do musicians take note of it. Mm. And then I try and explain what it is that's going on in it that means it had an impact and that other people followed it. So I remember one of my programs, I don't remember which one it was, I think it was maybe one of the How Music Works programs. I was trying to explain about rhythm. And I did a whole section on Stevie Wonder's use of rhythm in uh, his album Innovations. And Thomas Tallis is the bass line? Actually, no, that was in another programme about um, bass lines. Yeah. Uh, but at the year where I compared Stevie Wonder and Purcell, who were right, nearly right, yeah. um, doing the same technique in their bass lines. Because yeah. what you see right across music is whoever they are, wherever they come from, they're all the same sort of techniques are being used. And, mm. and what I try and do in my programmes is say, you know, you think you heard this music only in a piece by Bach. Well, actually, you've heard it in all these other... Mm. circumstances as well they're all doing the same stuff so for example I, my series the story of music which is kind of a history of music was really about the history of change in music so there were lots of composers in there who would be considered great composers who i missed out and i used to get angry at her saying why wasn't there more about brahms in your series mm. and my point was that series would have been 30 episodes long of an hour mm. each if i just included everybody who wrote nice music <laughs> My point was, I was trying to show people change when it happened, where it happened, 
why it happened and what happened next. Because mm. that's, to me, what's interesting. And I'm sort of neutral on what people like or don't like. I don't care. Mm. You know, if, if your favorite music is some music I don't like, that's fine. Um, but the technique that might be employed is my job. I do want people to know about technique. Now, obviously, there are pieces of music that I'm trying to demonstrate. I will choose something I like <laughs> in order to enjoy my job more. And yeah. there's a particular, what I was saying about um, rhythm and his innovations rhythms is that, you know, Steve Wonder, I would say, is the most influential black artist in world popular music in all its forms since the Second World War. He's by far the most influential figure. Now, that word influential doesn't mean best. Yeah. It just means most influential. He may be the best, and some people would agree with me that he is up there. But the point is that his, his influence was enormous. And I, I, in that program, I tried to show why it was enormous, because he did something with rhythm, which he sort of borrowed from Latin America. Although what he was really doing was interfacing with Latin American rhythms. And when he did it and demonstrated it working, all musicians thought, that's fantastic. Yeah. Why don't we get on that train? And <laughs> uh, then you can see the influence of that, you know, running like rivers through everybody else's music after he'd done it. And of course, he had to be a very successful and well-known composer and songwriter to do that, because otherwise, how else, how else is everybody going to hear about it? Uh, now, I did the same with the Beatles, which is that whether you like the Beatles or not, they are of enormous influence. And nothing was really the same again. So that's my job, is to show why. Mm. And I, you know, I've been asked recently whether I'd be interested in doing more programs. I mean, my view on this would be, if it's something I haven't yet done and I think needs doing, then yes, I'd be up for doing more. But I don't want to cover the same ground I've done before. And probably someone young and funkier will be coming up now who'll do that for the next generation. And that's fine by me. There are practical barriers to some of the things I would like to do. So for example, I've liked to do um, a series where I analyze great film scores, and why they're good, and how, they, how it's working, and how it yeah. all come, works together, and why people find them exciting and all the rest of it. Because there's always a why. There's always a reason why something really, really works. And I'd love to do that. But getting permission to use those scores and the films that they're attached to is pretty much impossible. Mm. Um, no, no broadcast in the world could afford it, the, what they'd ask. And you could only show it in one country. Uh, we could show it in Britain, but you couldn't show it elsewhere. And if you can't show it elsewhere, you're never going to get the investment back that costs to make the program. The only way you'd get to do that is if you went to the film companies themselves hmm. and said, can we make this with you, with your material and your permissions? But the problem with doing that is they are very likely to want you only to say good things. And they're probably <laughs> likely not you yeah. to want to use choose another score by another film company that is not under their control. They don't want to go and negotiate yeah. with their competitors. Well, yeah, I was just thinking you, you know, you could take it just because I'd like to see it, to go and pitch to Amazon or Netflix or something. But then of course they're only gonna say those well, they're gonna say said. you sort the rights out, mate, and we'll do it. Yeah. Because it is Good really <laughs> that's and and don't you ask yourself the question. Why have we not seen a program about that? Because surely that would be of immense interest to lots of people. Oh, yeah. Now, one of the reasons I was able to make the Sergeant Pepper documentary is because we got the Beatles agreement up front and they said, yes, you can have access to the material and yes, you can use it how you like. And that meant, because they were obviously keen that the anniversary of Sergeant Pepper should be marked and they knew I wasn't an idiot. But without that permission, we'd have made a very, very different program Mm. Uh, very and it certainly couldn't have been shown worldwide like that one was on the same night of the actual anniversary 50th anniversary and uh, you know if you chose six great film scores the copyright implications you could do it on the radio because you could just play the soundtrack but you couldn't show the pictures that they go with and that's to me the whole point does it work in the film and how is it working in the film and so I think you know I did a couple of things about films in my 20th century greats thing. I did a thing about Bernard Herrmann, who is a very, very fine film composer of the 50s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. Well, in order to do that program, we asked for permission to do it, so we've got very strict rules. We were able to use a thing called fair dealing, which is a legal loophole that allows you to scrutinize creative material by paying a set fee. But there are various rules you have to follow 
in order to do that, to deal with crediting and to do with the length of the clips you can use and how you use the material, et cetera, et cetera. And the other rule is fair dealing only for the UK market. So we could only do this to be shown on Channel 4 TV. Now, uh, as it happens, those programs have been on YouTube um, ever since and are illegally uploaded. Every time they're taken down, they're put back up again by somebody. And they're up and down and up and down, up and down like a yo-yo. And they do on there because people do want to watch them all over the world. And there are many millions of viewers in other countries mm. who shouldn't, by rights, be allowed to see that material. <laughs> I think the question that I couldn't forgive myself if I don't ask you is a little bit about all these people that you've collaborated with, whether that's on TV or film or things. I didn't realise you'd worked with Melvin Bragg on your big breakthrough musical as well. I yeah. mean, who is, I love um, the Ken Russell movies. Yeah. So, uh, and he was, I think, slightly involved with those. And of course, Richard Curtis and, and Rowan Atkinson being like the big names in everybody's heads. They often appear so musical, like Rowan Atkinson miming along to uh, Beethoven on the piano or... Richard Curtis's deploying of that particular track here, I'm still playing into my arms at people's weddings because he put it in about time and stuff like that. And Melvin Bragg being the you know, monster polymath. Is that a fair impression that I've got of them? Are they terribly musical chaps or well, are you just giving them a good in, stick? In different ways. You know, the first time I met Rowan, which was my first day at university, <laughs> um, we talked about his, his MSc he was doing in electrical science, which was in voltage-controlled oscillators, which is, Ooh, yeah. you will know, are part of wire synthesizer. Oh, uh, cool. And I was a synth head, I think is the name of the term, which is <laughs> mad about synthesizers at that time. I still am, actually. I'm actually wearing, look, a synthesizer T-shirt. Oh, brilliant. And that's look the OBXA that. machine <laughs> I had back in the early 80s doing Rowan's show. And here's a voltage-controlled oscillators question, you see. But the ABXA, there it is. There you go. Behind, magnificent, followed <laughs> some of the sympathizers of the early 80s. If, you, if your listeners want to, in a way, think what it sounds like, you remember the Pointer Sisters song, Jump. <laughs> I used to use this instead of a piano when I did Rowan's show, because Rowan was always interested in synthesizers. So from day one of the shows we used to do at university, we were using synthesizers to make funny noises to go with his funny characters, yeah, the ones yeah. that sort of later turned into bean-like characters. Mm. And he was very up for that, and I was up for it, and we were very interested in all that. And he was also writing a book at the time about the organs of Oxford University. And so he was always interested in musical things. Oh, yeah, I was going to say that many years later when I had my ABXA, this was after university when we were touring from time to time, we did a, a couple of, like, commercial gigs, like corporate events mm. where he'd do a show, and we did one corporate event. It was just him and me on a boat going up and down the Thames. And something like Ford dealers, bestsellers of the year were given a treat. And one of the <laughs> treats they had on this boat where they all got leglessly drunk was Rowan doing a little show for them. And let me just go back to voltage controlled oscillators. An oscillator makes a sound and voltage control means the voltage is controlling at what pitch that sound will be. So we launched into this song, and as the boat was going down the river, I, re I realised, to my horror, that the voltage coming out of the plug on a boat is controlled by the engine of the bolt. It's not like the mains <laughs> where your voltage is stable. The voltage goes up and down, and every time they sort of did a nasty corner, the, the voltage would go down as the, as the engine was drawing on the current. And then when it sort of started to coast a bit, the voltage would go back up again coming out of the plug. So unfortunately, as I was accompanying Rowan singing this song, <laughs> the key kept changing uh, of the synthesizer oh whilst God. I was singing. And he was staring at me as if to say, what the <laughs> F are you doing? Ruining my show. But anyway, going back to his performance and working with him, he was always interested in doing musical things. But I think because, um, I may be flattering myself here, but I think because... He, Richard and I were a kind of a trio working mm. on all these things together. 
because I was there all the time, I think lots more musical ideas occurred to us. Said, what if we did this, what if we did that? Because I could always say to him, well, we could do this, and then this is how it would work. And I think probably because I was always in the room, that was going to be a thing that was going to be possible because he would say, what if I conducted an orchestra? How on earth could we do that? So yeah. I would think of a way of doing it. And we did another sketch where he wanted to be playing an invisible drum kit. Oh, yeah. On an enormous stage. I know it well. The drum kit, you know, had like a thousand sounds. In it. And <laughs> he said, how could we do this? Because he, he didn't want to do it like it was like playing, miming to a recording, because that would yeah. be boring and also non-magical. Yeah. And I said, well, we, what we could do is we could sample all the sounds of a drum kit and all lots of other things we made, sounds of things, you know, mm. tripping into a thing, a gong or mm. um, sticks running along the floor, whatever it was. And we'll put every, we'll sample everyone onto a different key of the keyboard, the 88 keyboard I've got here. And <laughs> so I can play it live. So you can actually go bong like that. And it'll happen when your hand hits the imaginary drum. So we actually did that. I mean, it took us long, complicated yeah. to set up, but we did do that. So when we did it live, there were two things going on. One was that people enjoyed the humor of it. But the other thing is they were thinking, how on earth are they doing this? I've thought that, yeah. Because it looks kind of impossible. It was the only sketch that we did when we went on tour that Ron and I always did it before the show as a practice run mm. because we had to be completely in the same headspace yeah. and completely concentrating. There was no question you could do that sketch without us being really on our game. But it was really worth it because there was this joint feeling of joy at the sketch and him being very funny, um, but also of the how the hell am I watching this? It looks like a magic trick. <laughs> I think that's it. And I think that just a final thought about collaborators is it's probably, again, advice to 18-year-old composers, probably the most important decision you'll ever make in your life is who you work with. I don't mean that old-fashioned myth, which is it's not who you know, it's what, and it's not how. Uh, it's not what you know, it's who you know. Yeah, I think it's a bit of a myth, by the way. I think what it actually means is that who you collaborate with is who you'll learn from and who you will create things with, because they'll bring to the party things you do not know, skills you do not have, and an attitude that you can't possibly do. And I think that the things that I've done that have been most kind of work best have been where the collaborative thing works best, where the other people you're working with and you are on the same page, and it's really flown because of that. That's something it feels difficult to know when you're young because what you what you keep people keep saying is be true to yourself stick with yeah. what you want to do which means nothing <laughs> being true to yourself means nothing it means what i would say is i'd not be true to yourself find good people to work with mm. is the thing you know john lennon and paul mccartney found each other and the world was grateful yeah. uh, you know for the fact they did because they both wrote and became much better writers as a result of working with each other yeah I just want to listen to your wisdom all day. It's just pouring out. Um, thank you so much for um, coming on and, and sharing so much with us. It's Sir Paul McCartney's birthday last week. Any absolute standout favourite Paul McCartney song for us to play you out with? I've got several favourites. Eleanor Rigby, Maybe I'm Amazed. Mm. Uh, I keep going back to Paperback Writer. I don't know why. Paperback Writer, I was going to say, uh, We Can Work It Out, just non dissimilar. Mm. I mean, he's, he's, you know, the, the list is ridiculous, isn't it? It's yeah. absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> and you keep discovering little things. We've been following his records from time to time, and you know, you like some, and then you pick some, and you just find another gem of a song that's hardly known. You just did. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and also, he's so nice and um, kind and just a good person as well. Kind of the opposite of this idea that you've got to be ruthless and horrible to achieve anything. No, you don't. And you can be Paul McCartney and you can be the greatest living composer and be nice to people. It does work. Kermit the Frog. Kermit the Frog is out there, still circling like a shark in the water, forced to eat a kangaroo testicle. You asshole. His liver was pecked out by an eagle. What monkey glands are they eating? His dog uh, just made a more sensible contribution uh, than he did. You asshole. Yes, Kermit the Frog sang. We will take back control of our fisheries. Unnecessarily rude to Miss Piggy, I thought. Asshole. He's a very eel-like customer.
but it is up to us now to let that lion roar. Asshole. And time, I think, to put a bit of a tiger in the tank and, and get this thing done. You asshole. Kermit the Frog. Yes, Kermit the Frog is out there, still circling like a shark in the water. Straight into a massive elephant trap. Asshole. I swallowed a bug. This is not all about some expensive green act of bunny hugging. I know it's bunny hugging, but you, you, you know what I'm driving at. We send you penguins, and they're the bear. Uh, those are not, that's not mine. Asshole. Sam, that was fabulous. What was it like meeting a hero? Yeah, he's uh, been... I actually put Howard Goodall in my personal statement when applying for university. <laughs> someone I was inspired by. So it was a bit weird meeting your heroes, and they always say don't. Uh, but I thought it was reflective of his generosity of character that, A, he stayed for such a long time, but B, he started that first... Uh, question about awards by not thinking about himself but by zooming out and recognizing that they are important in lots of young composers careers I think he's got that wider brain mm. open kind of thinking and yeah something I really admire it's not too self-indulgent self-absorbed no. solipsistic <laughs> you've been at your at your thesaurus again yes uh, I was annoyed I got that talus not per cell baseline but hey you know I can live with that I forgive you I was interested to hear how I talk about how high the bar is for new musical theatre and this idea between uh, low perceived low and high art mm. and the fact that a, a successful show for a new piece of musical theatre would be deemed as two years, a two-year run. It's crazy. But in an opera, you know, you'd be lucky to get a, a month run and that would be you know, amazingly successful. Why, you know, why is that? Why do we see these things differently? Why does that, how does the economics come into the the social perception there? Yeah, well, and Angela Rayner this week being dug out by Dominic Raab for going to the opera because mm. opera is perceived as being high art. Everyone knows that it's uh, more expensive to go and watch football at Arsenal than it is to go to any opera house in the country. Mm -hmm. But somehow the framing of these things, the, the social element of them... Uh, puts them in these different brackets. Yeah, so it's completely... The more I learn about the economics of these things, the more I think their social baggage needs to be dropped. But it was heartening, very interesting as well, to hear Howard talk about the social role that mm. the composer plays uh, expressing a nation's grief, yes. for example, as in Never to Forget. Yeah, it seems to be a language... Classical music seems to be a language that people reach for in those moments where words fail us. Uh, I know we've both are big fans of John Adams's uh, On the Transmigration of Souls, mm -hmm. the piece written to memorialise uh, September 11th attacks. And in those moments where normal human language fails, it seems like we all grasp for yes something. It's funny, isn't it? Yeah, the, the barber... Adagio for strings is another mm. one that gets used, wheeled out quite regularly for moments of American national mourning. But also national anthems yeah. come out a lot, don't they? Which is a sort of category in itself. Yeah, that collective song. I was actually, one of the questions I wanted to ask Howard was about uh, his Sing Up program and uh, how he'd been part of that in 2007 and trying to create a national singing program so that we all still had music in common. Because I've certainly found in the last few years doing music for people's weddings and things like that. Mm. Trying to find music that everybody knows and everyone wants to sing is really hard. And basically all you're left with is the Beatles. Mm. Uh, and we're all still living in Paul McCartney's universe. Well, yeah, and that was an interesting question you threw in at the end. Uh, What's your favourite, Paul? Uh, my favourite, Paul? Maybe I'm amazed. I, it, mm. I don't know. It's a Wings song, but pretty sure he wrote Still counts. it yeah I, I mean i know it from the oc soundtrack <laughs> side question uh, that i was talking to our friend the wonderful author maddie mortimer going by her book uh with the other night was are we all still living in paul mccartney's universe because i watched elbows set at glastonbury and i thought paul mccartney could have written these songs mm -hmm. with we're 60 years on and he could still be 
he didn't write these songs, but we could find a line to trace back to that kind of figure. Yeah. And actually also another figure with similar long-lasting influence to my ears uh, is Stevie Wonder, the other one that uh, yeah, Howard wants Steve to do. And it's interesting that you said to my ears there, because I, I wonder whether each person's ears will bring something new to that question. So, you know, somebody listening to Beyonce, rather than drawing a line back to Stevie Wonder, if they're a massive Drake fan, they yeah. might be like, oh, this is Drake. This is so Drake, you know, and that's... Music is in the ear of the beholder. Does that make sense? It sounds quite... Um, Nearly makes sense. Yeah. I don't think it does. Oh, those 